You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 16th of January, 2019, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show... Last night, the House rejected the deal the government has negotiated with the European Union. Today, it is asked a simpler question. Should the next step be a general election? Well, no one really knows. In yet another decisive day on the Brexit debate, we ask if Theresa May will survive a motion of no confidence. And indeed, what happens if not? My guests, Michael Binion and Joy Ladico, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Emmanuel Macron's national debate tour. Will talking it out help move the country forward? Then, Germany's intelligence agency starts monitoring some members of the right-wing AFD. And press freedom is under threat in Montenegro as a journalist is jailed for his work. That's all to come on Midori House here with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Michael Binion, a foreign affairs specialist for The Times, and Joy Ladico, columnist at the London Evening Standard. Welcome both to the program. Well, by the time we get to the end of tonight's debate, British MPs will be voting on a motion of no confidence on Theresa May and her government. Britain is still on course to lead the European Union at the end of March, but still nobody really knows whether it will be with a deal or with no deal, or whether there will be a general election or a second referendum. Joy, we're back here again on the same topic. Uh, less than 24 hours ago, you were you were here. Um, it was 10 o'clock last night. Yeah, just 10 o'clock after, last just night. Just after the votes came in. Just after all the drama of a crushing defeat. Mm. What really have we learned in the last 24 hours? Um, not a lot, actually. We've, yeah. I think we've learned that Theresa May's idea that she's going to be having a pleasant conversation with the opposition and trying to come mm. to a communal position um, is perhaps not going to happen, given the robust debate there was during Prime Minister's questions between the two of them. Um, and that, I mean, this evening we learn whether she gets through this confidence vote mm-hmm. or not. The, the money is that it will pass uh, absolutely fine. And then we end up yet again in uh, a question of what do we do next? And we begin to find answers to that on Monday. People are beginning to table bills mm. uh, to try and push the process forward. What comes through, we still don't know. Well, let's get back to that in a minute. Uh, but Michael, if we look at the actual um, vote that's coming up in, in about half an hour, a lot of people have said we're past that moment where we need to have this. And it's just, uh, you know, another exercise. What is the point then of, of holding the vote? And, and will we get anything out of that? Well, I think the vote is because the Labour Party is self-divided over Mm. what to do next. Uh, The leader, Jeremy Corbyn, doesn't really want a second referendum. Most of the party does. And therefore, he's trying to say the important thing is an election. A Labour government is what matters. We'll do better. And he's trying to push that button first. I think he knows that it won't pass. Um, She'll scrape by just by the skin of her teeth, Mm. incidentally. I mean, it's not going to be a big margin, a few votes. But if she manages to get all the uh, Democratic Unionist Party to vote for her, all 12 votes, uh, which would be surprising that they should do so, having seen the bitterness that they showed uh, over the Brexit vote. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that they don't want a Labour government either. No Conservative wants a general election. If she loses the vote of confidence, almost certainly there would have to be a general election. And then uh, that's that's for both the DUP and the Conservatives, the nightmare scenario. Mm-hmm. So they'll pass it. And then, of course, we have to get back to the actual matter in hand, which is what to do about Brexit. 
I think, I'm not sure the general election is, is automatic because under the Fixed Terms Parliaments Act, uh, Theresa May could... In, it, basically, somebody could step forward from within the Conservatives and the, essentially say, we are capable of forming and running a government and the Queen would rubber stamp it. Mm. And so in theory, you could carry on with a Conservative government. So, so in, t- in terms of what theoretically could happen, it is not automatic that even if Corbyn won the vote of confidence, uh, that he would in- end up in power. That's true. But mm. it's, I mean, they have 14 days to come forward with an alternative have 14 days government. To, and four- that supposes that the Conservatives can find a leader that they themselves can uh, coalesce around. Well, I think they mm. would coalesce. I mean, I, my theory is they would coalesce less quite easily around any sort of centrist figure in the party in order to stop Corbyn mm. trying to form a government. Right. So in fact it may but I mean this is again all theoretical all, everybody from Westminster is saying she's going to win the vote mm. and people have lined up correctly. At seven o'clock there may mm. be a big surprise but. The only thing I know is the Queen won't be dissolving uh, Parliament. <laughs> That's not allowed anymore no, but well, you mentioned earlier um, the DOP and, and, and May making time to speak with um, you know the, the, the party propping up uh, her government. Uh, there was also talk last night when we were here on the Daily about uh, about maybe working with Labour. But where does May go sort of next with that in trying to? Does she need? Where does she need support now? Well, she's, yeah. I mean, she doesn't seem she hasn't had a direct conversation mm. with Labour about their position. Uh, and when you talk about Labour, again, you're talking about a series of divisions. There's mm. now a rump of Labour that has come out in favour of the second referendum. There were 71 signatories to a letter today. They are not in Corbyn's. Uh, they're not uh, in Corbyn's gang. Mm. Um, Corbyn himself wants to put forward a new deal, um, which is uh, it's sort of almost as fantastical as Theresa May trying to get this deal through, because there simply isn't time, and he hasn't he hasn't actually sketched out what he particularly wants, other than wanting to be in a customs union, so we have to go back to Europe. Um, what does he want? I'm, mm. I mean, I think this is what's mystifying almost everybody at the moment. What do you what do you do in this situation? You place you put forward a vote where you're you almost know you're going to lose. So you're not going to get your general election. You're going to try and put through... Um, Corbyn's rump is going to try and put through uh, a customs union or something like that as a plan. That's not going to get through. So he's, in fact, delaying the negotiation process. And mm-hmm. as we know, he's a Brexiteer. His most obvious position is to say, I believe in Brexit, uh, but I think we should put it back to the people uh, and have a second referendum and you can all decide again on a series of options. Um, but he's yet to get to that point. Mm. Michael, if we look at the, uh, the response from from Europe. We've had uh, a lot of strong statements from European and EU leaders, but uh, the papers across the continent must be having a, a good oh, time with this today. Fear day. Yes. I mean, they're pouring ridicule on Britain, mm. uh, saying, you know, this was once the land of reason. It's the land of complete madness at mm. the moment. Uh, where has responsibility gone to? I mean, uh, the, 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 the rudest and funniest line was in Bilt, uh, the mm. mass circulation German newspaper, where they just called it Brexit. Mm. <laughs> uh, and uh, Uh, They're all both mystified and horrified and at the same time slightly sort of sorrowful and saying, you know, what's gone wrong with Britain? Mm. Uh, None of them, no paper in Europe, wants to see Britain leave. They certainly don't want to see Britain leave without a treaty because that would hurt them. Uh, particularly the German car industry would hurt them a lot. Mm. So there are quite a lot of people who don't want Britain to crash out. But they are really just waiting to say, well, uh, what do you want to do? I mean, they're rather taking the line that the Attorney General took. You know, these are children in a playground. Uh, when you come to order and decide what you want to do, then tell us. 
Mm. Joy, uh, from the EU's perspective, an election call or a defeated government would only make things worse. So mm. uh, we know that they, they don't want that. But there has been some clear uh, direction from Europe, I mean, and and from European leaders, as I say, Merkel uh, saying there may be room for talks, for mm-hmm. example, but but the EU saying we need direction. We need... Okay, yeah, we, 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 the EU has actually since November been gently saying, look, we could probably extend uh, Article 50 by a couple of months without mm. kind of great amount of hoo-ha. Uh, their real deadline is July the 2nd, which is so there's uh, May elections for MEPs and July the 2nd is when their parliament resumes and you uh, they're in a ridiculous situation if they've got ongoing exit negotiations with us while holding seats for us. So right. that really is their kind of deadline. Where can they go from here? Well, um, they've ramped up the rhetoric on um, uh, no deal on their side in the sense that they're putting more preparations into um, hiring staff for customs checks, phytosanitary checks and so forth. So they are preparing themselves. They can... um, We would have to ask for an extension for Article 50 for... uh, that to go forward they're likely to say yes under certain conditions um, and that would be an extension beyond July Um, what else can they do it doesn't really sound like they're going to yield any more in particular on the Northern Ireland backstop um, which has been the critical issue all along because it has been negotiated now for three months or so and they can do nothing more than what's already written in the uh, the withdrawal agreement Um, Michael, that's one thing that that we may have uh, actually learned today. Um, Ireland is saying they're pressing ahead with no-deal plans, not just contingency plans anymore. They're they're moving in some direction. Yes. Well, for the Irish, it's extremely serious. I mean, it is probably would affect them as much as it would affect Britain, if not more. But their exports would be affected, and particularly uh, this border. If Britain crashes out, there would have to be a border, uh, because uh, the uh, British would have to enforce some kind of controls or customs controls. The Northern Irish would hate it. Both the Unionists and the Republicans don't want to see a border. But it would be inevitable uh, if Britain then simply uh, says we're not part of this union anymore. Uh, And uh, the Republic is very worried about that. I mean, they would try to preserve it, but unless you can get some arrangement whereby you can have uh, at least customs or, you know, controls on trade and also on the movement of people, there's nothing they can do about it. And as I understand it, actually, we, we, you know, the hard Brexiteers keep saying, oh, we can just uh, run our trade policy on WTO rules. And I believe WTO rules require a proper border between right. two countries. So we would also be, as well as the uh, uh, Republic of Ireland being obliged to put up a border because it would then be the border to the EU, we too would be obliged to. So both sides lose on this one argument. And imagine a scenario <laughs> both the sides don't want to be in. Yeah. Uh, let us turn our focus now to France, where President Emmanuel Macron has kickstarted his national debate tour following demonstrations and protests of the Yellow Vest movement, which have rocked the country in recent weeks. Yesterday, Macron met with almost 600 mayors for about seven hours talking about taxes, isolation, and the economy. Uh, Michael, a good strategy to address this mounting discontent, just get out there and and, and show your face. He's really not been a popular man uh, around the country. Well, it's probably the only thing he can do, but it does look rather like a council of despair. I mean, I can't see that this is going to really satisfy mm. all those people who are having fun at roundabouts, you know, waving uh, placards and, and shouting at people and, and just being sort of anarchistic, which uh, tends to be a streak of uh, mm. certain uh, traditional French behavior. Uh, but uh, this idea of, you know, serious talks about what is the best form of tax we should have, how much should senior government officials earn, how should we protect the environment, all this is heavy stuff. And frankly, the people in the yellow vests, they're not going to be sitting down and saying, well, I think 
think the you know, maximum for mm. government employees should be this or that. I can't see it really having any effect at all on the hardcore that want to go out there and just uh, demonstrate. Mm. Uh, it might perhaps uh, improve his own image in his party and with the public in general a little bit. The mayors will hope that he is going to be flexible on issues where they've got some local control, perhaps. Um, but I, it's a way of buying time mm. for him at the moment, I think. Nothing more. Uh, Joy, I mean, the, part of the big issue for Macron is is, is the image of, of the elite and ruling class versus everyone else that's actually on the street. So this isn't this isn't really doing him any any favors. Well, I think what he's doing is trying to take the physical activity yeah. into a verbal activity. So he's essentially he's opening up. Uh, an online website and uh, these local municipalities are going to be opening up something called books of complaint right. um, I mean God knows what the moderate you know if you if the, sort of the Guardian website the number of moderators you'd have mm. um, as this you know it's a way of kind of letting people write down and vent their kind of anger and their frustration um, and in theory he's going to deal with these complaints or the municipalities will, will have a look at them first um, it, it, there is going to be uh, I mean if you came to you know, this nation and asked everybody to write down their grumbles. Yeah. It would be some very, very hefty tomes, indeed, an entire library. Uh, I, I was trying to work out who else would do such a grand uh, conversation, right. and um, I found that um, uh, that Viktor Orban in Hungary likes having what he calls kind of national conversations by sending out questionnaires, heavily tilted, uh, to all the households <laughs> in Hungary, saying. Do you think George uh, Soros is behind the great conspiracy? Mm-hmm, yeah. And do you think um, family values are being undermined by mass migration? And everybody's got to tick the box. Um, I don't think Macron is going mm. to be quite that style. But the difficulty, of course, is that he gets all these answers. He has everyone sending in huge number of tweets and, and mm. replies and the mayors drawing up long lists of what they've listened to. What's he going to do about it? I mean, does it mean he then turns over the government to a sort of committee which says, right, we now have to do this on tax, we have to do this on environment, we have to do... I mean, he, he can't run a government based on sort of public opinion polls. Mm. Uh, uh, except public opinion polls actually are, are, are strange things because what we see as big concerns, so there's one very clear thing, which is he scrapped the wealth tax so the, yeah. the wealthiest didn't have to pay uh, higher taxes, which upsets everybody. But some of the demands are things like we, we want a scrapping of the 80 kilometres per hour speed limit. Now, it's one of those things, a bit like uh, blue passports in mm. Brexit, where something that is in fact, I mean, it may cause some more road deaths, but in fact is a relatively minor thing, would end up being something that sort of satisfies a whole load of the discontents. Because mm. they're going, oh great, we can drive at 90 kilometres yes, an hour, but you're, get fine. you're leading towards sort of a Swiss-style d- direct democracy, yeah. a referendum right. on almost every yeah, issue, and that's not the French way, and never has been. And uh, if he's moving the country towards that sort of government, I think he'll find that those that actually administer the country are going to be yeah. pretty annoyed about yeah. it. Um, I found something quite interesting on, um, I was just looking at the French news, and they've just decided to ban the use of something called Roundup, which is a glyphosate, it's a weed killer. And there's been a big debate in the EU for years about whether we should ban it or not. And the UK has decided not to, France now has. Uh, and again, this is one of these little kind of trigger issues, because it is used by gardeners, mm-hmm. uh, it'll be, and it's used heavily in rural environments, and it's used heavily by agriculture. And it reduce, if you don't have decent weed killers, you start reducing crop yields right. uh, and you start causing chaos. And again, it's a sort of top-down order and it's an ecological order. And the people who are going to suffer are not the kind of people with window boxes in Paris. Again, it's going to be the countryside. So what do you do? Do you stick a question about that on mm-hmm. the um, on the on, on the questionnaires or not? Well, for protests, it started uh, being over the diesel tax, of course. Now yeah. we're looking at, at Roundup, and 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 so certain certain people in in the country are going to say this is this is still targeting uh, yeah. us. Uh, but for Macron, part of of course his big agenda is is pushing forward in any case on his on his green agenda on the yes. environment. Yeah. Is that right? And that's yes. one of the 
questions actually yeah. um, that's being put to um, the people in the very uh, mm. populist language of how do we finance ecological transition through taxation and whose contribution should be prioritised? Mm. I mean, that's a question that, you know, I'm sure every rural farmer will uh, can answer casually. In any case, I think uh, trying to keep peace in, in, in France, it looks like he's not going to, uh, you know, uh, appease everyone or, or back down on anything, Michael. Is that right? No, he's not going to appease. And uh, unfortunately, he's not going to appease those that are really... Uh, causing him the most grief, and those are the hardcore protesters who actually don't have a very Mm. political agenda, apart from a sort of general extremist or anarchist agenda. Mm. I mean, they're not that many, but they can cause a lot of trouble, and they're visible, and they're out there. And to start off with, uh, they had sort of broad mass support. Now, that's sort of fallen away as people have got tired and Mm. bored of all this. Uh, But they'll, (coughs) excuse me, they'll still be there. And I think uh, it's a question of whether Macron can sit it out Uh, The other problem is, though, that uh, his general um, initial plan, which is to modernize France, to get France moving forward, to make it more competitive, all that, which for him was absolutely central to what he wanted to do in the first place, that looks as though it's going to be almost impossible to manage. And he will be yet another president who has these great ideas for reform, who ran into a wall of sort of public opinion, Mm. doesn't want change and doesn't want anything that would cost them anything. Uh, So... Uh, his country will will not find that he's the great reformer they thought he was. Is this uh, no matter what, Joy? Do you think the, the end of Macron, the steady, the steady decline? Because it's been it's been a really bad year for him. Um, it, well, it has been. I mean, I think it, you know he started off trying to be Jupiter, terribly mm. aloof, having been a, a man of the people, supposedly from Rothschild. Yeah. Uh, but his popularity ratings have sunk incredibly low, and it's hard to see how he recovers from this point in time. Because, as Michael says, you know you begin to lose the the voters who wanted him in the first place mm. if you can't reform, and he's already lost the rural community and it's very difficult to see how those return. The next question is what happens when you get round to the next round of elections, mm. which must be two two years away, um, and suddenly Marine Le Pen comes back mm. onto the stage. She's regrouping yeah. already. Um, mm. And the, the, where we all... Re- we, we liberals all rejoice when Macron was elected. Mm. Um, it looks like it might be a much closer contest this time. Well, we're going to talk about the right wing in Germany in just a moment, but on, on that front, in, in France, that that's uh, getting revival, is it? Yes, it hasn't got. It hasn't really gone away. I mean, she blundered a bit in the election campaign, and uh, in the end, there was sufficient public opinion against what was perceived as extremism. But uh, populism has been given another sort of new wave. I mean, it, the the Italian experience, and of course, France and Italy are loggerheads now. Mm. Uh, and so the populists in Italy are goading on uh, the both the protesters and also the right wing in France. And I think there is still discontent over, well, it's over the same things. It's over immigration. It's over poor, low rural wages. It's particularly strong the support from Le Pen up in the northeast of France, sort of around uh, the old coal mining areas, mm. where there is the same discontent that you see in much of northern England, uh, industries that have uh, basically been hollowed out. Uh, and I think there is plenty of... Um, plenty of ammunition for her to use in a new round of uh, elections. And uh, she's probably learned her lesson of where she went wrong last time. Her movement isn't terribly coherent. I mean, there are tremendous tensions within it as to mm. how far to the right they should go, whether, you know, all the stuff about the smears being smeared with anti-Semitism, which was a, a visible part of it earlier on. She wants to drop all that, but we'll see.
You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Beige, Michael Binion, and Joe Ladigo. Coming up next, uh, the extreme right wing of Germany's AFD is placed under surveillance. Immerse yourself in the world of Monocle. Visit monocle.com. Listen live to our radio station, Monocle 24, or explore more than 5,000 hours of audio. Every minute of every show we've broadcast since we launched. And don't forget that we have over 400 films to watch and share, while magazine subscribers can log in and browse our complete print archive on screen. Our online shop is here too, which you'll find well-stocked with clothing, books, travel accessories, fragrances, homewares, and more. Check into monocle.com every day for fresh news and opinion from our editors and bureau around the globe. Then plan a trip to one of those spots for business or pleasure with our handy city and resort guides. It's all there for you at monocle.com. What are you waiting for? You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Michael Binion, and Joy Ladico. Now, Germany's domestic intelligence agency has announced it is monitoring some elements of the anti-immigration party, AFD, alternative for Deutschland. Uh, the focus seems to be mainly on one of its members, Bjorn Hawk, who the agency says is pushing his wing of the party further towards the extreme right. Uh, what do you think about this surveillance, first off, uh, Michael? Uh, won't it embolden that cause even more a little bit? Well, it will strengthen the hand of some of the right wing and particularly some of the um, more anarchistic elements who say that it's all a plot and the government is determined to squash the voice of the real Germany and that uh, this is just a sign that they can't listen to uh, what the people want and things of that kind. Most Germans will be relieved because the right wing, the right wing element of the AFD has certainly been saying some very nasty things and doing mm. some nasty things and frankly... Uh, making Germans feel both in embarrassed and ashamed. I mean, when you get one of the leaders, one of the right-wing leaders saying, for example, of the Holocaust, that it was just a speck of dirt, a bird mess on the face of history. Well, you know, that's mm. not the sort of thing Germans want published abroad, that one of their main political parties, which is now the official opposition, well, the, the, set, the largest opposition party, is saying something like that. Uh, equally, I think... If the, um, the Federal Intelligence Agency is careful not to survey or keep an eye on the whole party, but just certain elements, that will help the more moderate elements of the party mm. who don't want to be smeared as extremists. Uh, I mean, one thing about this party, it started off fairly respectably. It was a group of academics who were against the euro, and it started off because of the Greek yeah. euro crisis. They then, uh, they didn't do that well, but they attracted a lot of nationalist support. And that also then grew after the immigration, the mass immigration two or three years ago, three years ago, in fact. Uh, and now you've got a much more nationalist uh, uh, group of people. So it really is much more, much further to the right. The academics have more or less left mm. this party. It really is a right-wing party. But there are still elements of it that want to keep it respectable and within mm. the bounds of the sort of German consensus. Well, it is part of uh, Germany's constitution where uh, where the far right or, or the far left could, could be shut down or, or monitored. But what do we think, Joy, of, of that actual move, putting them on this watch list when we, we talk about discourse now? Nationally, in, in trying to actually shut down a part of a, a party by by maybe pressuring them. Well, I, I would imagine that uh, the Germans who dislike surveillance mm. anyway, I and mean, you'll remember the um, Obama sort of tapping scandal, mm. will have considered this long and hard. And I think it took them months and months to come to any sort of decision yeah. about whether they want to, want to be surveying. And also, obviously, they would have to make it public that that was indeed happening. Right. Um, 
it is, it is again, it's a question of what the far right is doing and what level of disruption they are going to cause and how much that's going to impact society. Yeah. And Germany obviously has, uh, because of its history, decided that certain things cannot be cannot be allowed to return to uh, the main discourse. And if you do have, start having, I'm not sure if uh, the Hocker Wing has actually done full-on Holocaust denial, but it's, you know, I, I've come across other statements yes. made by yeah. um, him that would make you think, well, actually, it's it's literally, a, a, you know, a, a, a cigarette paper away yeah. from that. Um, there was a very fascinating film um, called uh, Look Who's Back a couple of years I ago. Guess. Did you see that? I have, yeah. Which was a sort of, it was an extraordinary piece of kind of documentary, mockumentary where Hitler returns mm. it, and uh, and he goes around, you know, man dressed as Hitler goes around to, um, with a reporter uh, to various areas, I think particularly in the South, and people come up to him on the street totally on stage and congratulate him and say, thank God you're back. Mm. You know, my God, it's been a mess since you've mm. gone. And at that point you begin to realise quite what Hocker is tapping into yeah. which is still a set of ideas that have essentially been moved off stage and into people's homes, hearts, heads. And, and that's not that and resentment and that's not yes. the whole German population right. by any means um, but the certain sectors of it. A resentment especially of foreigners and I think yeah. the, 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 the moment that the AFD really gained attraction and uh, votes was after this mass immigration. Uh, it's become very much an anti-Muslim party anti-Islam yeah. They've uh, called for Muslims to be expelled, a lot of them, or moved back to their homelands, uh, back from where they, to where they came from. Uh, they uh, Elements associated with the extremists have yeah. been uh, found guilty of attacking uh, asylum uh, hostels and of uh, actual racial incidents. Uh, it's very nasty. It's quite ugly on the streets there. Uh, and I think that the uh, mainstream, the, the people now leading the parliament, uh, sorry, the AFD party in mm. parliament, are not quite sure how to handle this wing because it really, it, it, it tars all of them if, yeah. if we get that, those sort of incidents. So maybe uh, it, it might be very useful for the sort of respectable bit of the AFD if the extremists in their midst were being looked at. Very fascinating analysis. I want to just make sure we have time for this last topic tonight. Uh, press freedom in Europe, more specifically in Montenegro. A court in the small Balkan state has sentenced uh, Jovo Martinovic, an investigative journalist, to one and a half years in prison on charges of drug trafficking and criminal association. But Martinovic, known for his coverage of crime stories, has said this is retaliation for his reporting. What do you take on this? This is a, is a top-down pressure. This is a long-running case, isn't it, Joey? Mm. Uh, so it's all started off in 2015. Mm. Um, he's one of a number of investigative reporters who, uh, uh, as I understand it, Montenegro, in fact, is really struggling mm. with press freedoms. Uh, and it's partly because um, they have uh, had the same president for a long time. Yeah. That. There's also, it seems to be a sort of heavy criminal ele elements that do not want particular stories to arrive. So there's another, um, uh, you know, there's something, the crime reporter from one of the major newspapers who's in opposition to the government was shot while, yeah. you know, on a story. Um, so there seems to be a lawlessness in Montenegro and that's targeting journalists in particular. And so his defence will be that he's part of that uh, part of that particular scene. Uh, Michael, is this a big black mark uh, for press freedom in that country, as, as Joy mentioned, uh, already a, a huge issue? Yes, I think it is a black mark, and I'm afraid it's not only uh, Montenegro where we're seeing similar kinds of pressure. Uh, we are seeing 
the emergence of very strong mafia gangs uh, who have close connections to politicians, who have uh, some fairly corrupt arrangements, who have been investigated by journalists and who are determined to stamp out any publicity for what they are doing. So uh, you would see in uh, Kosovo, you've seen in uh, other Balkan countries, the same kind of mafia groups Mm. targeting journalists, of course, not necessarily ordered by the government. We've seen a similar sort of thing in Malta, sadly. A brave journalist who was uh, exposing some corruption, particularly close to the government, got murdered. We still don't know exactly who's been responsible. But I'm afraid it is quite dangerous now, being an investigative reporter, even in Europe. One would have thought that Europe, you know, with a bastion of uh, press and liberty and all that, it's not really safe. I mean, I mean, there are incidents where the investigators, uh, the, invest- the crime journalist who was shot has been doing a story on cigarette smuggling. There was a bomb um, a, a placed at the office of another investigative journalist. Um, I mean, it does look yeah. very much like anybody who asks questions is yes, going to find yes. um, a difficult answer. But it's also interesting that the government does not at that point step in and say this isn't yes. what we want to go, where we want to go. The other question, obviously, is that Montenegro is trying to um, get into the EU, which right. has um, certain kind of rules and regulations about uh, how we treat the press and fu- basic fundamental rights. And uh, it, it is looking, I mean, the EU has already threatened to withdraw this sort of pre-financing that goes on if you apply for membership. Um, and they're already threatening to withdraw that as it all becomes more lawless. I'm afraid authoritarian governments everywhere don't like press freedom, mm. particularly as it's much more damaging now than it used to be, in that mm. if people discover corruption, they can tweet it, they can blog it, they can send it around to thousands of people straight away. If it's just one small newspaper bravely struggling, in the past, sometimes the government just sort of didn't didn't pay any attention. But now, if you do uncover some serious corruption and you link it to government ministers, then you're in trouble. And then Mm. the answer is, get them. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Michael Binion and Joy Ladico, thank you both so much for joining us here again at Midori House. Today's show produced by Carlotta Rabella, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Maylee Evans and Martha Libri, our studio manager, Christy Evans. More music next at 1900 Hours. It is The Entrepreneurs with yours truly. And then The Monocle Daily at 2200 with Guy Delani. I'm Daniel Bage. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.